Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Hi, and welcome back to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is a CEO, Edris Bamanian. Edris, tell us about yourself. Hey, John. Good to see you again. Um, my name is Edris Bamanian. As you said, you can call me Edris or Ed. I live in Davis, California. I've been here for the last 11 years. Uh, for those of you who don't know where Davis is, it's 15 minutes west of Sacramento and about 70 minutes uh, east of the Bay Area. Um, I'm the CEO of Engage3. Uh, this is where we're headquartered. I'll tell you a little bit more about Engage3 shortly, um, but more about me originally from LA and the Bay Area. Um, I uh, have always been passionate about the intersection of retail technology and, and entrepreneurship and startups. Um, that was not necessarily by design. I didn't realize that pattern until a few years ago that I realized, oh, wow, that just kind of worked out where that was the intersection I was in. So I guess that tells me something <laughs> in terms of just the actual data and, and what actually came to pass and what, what happened. But um, I am uh, very curious to read more about what others are talking about in some of your, uh, in the book that's coming up, John. So I'm actually really excited to read about it. I hope you don't mind me mentioning it here. Um, and you, you, what I'll also- We have a spot for shameless plugs. So I, I won't make one. You just made one for me. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm very keen on reading it. I'm excited about it. So a little bit about Engage3, I guess I'll just mention it. Uh, we help um, our retail and brand customers figure out how to get the right offer to the right, uh, for the right product to the right person at the right time. And yep. so ultimately, we want to bring human values into the pricing equation. Um, and in order to do that, we want we need to understand what are the products that are out for sale? Um, what are what's being charged for those products? What are the product attributes? Right? What are the health claims? What are the objectives of the products? Are they, you know, more budget oriented, more sustainability, environmental oriented? Are they more convenience oriented? So, so we understand all that information. And then we help our retail and brand customers understand how to better engage with their customers. It's a great lead up because it's, it's not obvious how or what you'd be scaling for at that point. So how do you either, how do you scale that business or how do you get paid or are you not keeping score or measuring it by revenue? How do you measure scale in a business like that? Yeah, uh, we measure it in a few different ways. One is how much revenue do we have under management? How much revenue out there is being okay. driven uh, by decisions that come from our software solutions? So we have cloud-based SaaS solutions, we have retailers and brands leveraging them, and it helps them understand what to price, who to price to, and so on. Um, and it also helps them understand what's going on in the market, right? How uh, And what are my competitors doing? And so for us, it's revenue under management. For us, it's how much data are we bringing in, right? It's a big data play. So we're bringing in billions of prices a week and product information uh, lines and rows a week. And we're, we're harmonizing all of that um, and, and bring it together in a way that our customers can interact with and get insights from. So there's that component as well. And it's how many verticals are you supporting, right? Grocery, drug, pet, mass, merchandising, e-commerce, sporting, you know, the fashion apparel. So that's another way that we track it and say, okay, what, what beachheads and verticals are we supporting? So then who pays you? Uh, we get paid by the retailers and the brands. And okay. so they, so I, they, I they buy something from Lululemon and Lululemon pays you. Uh, a way to think about it is that retailers and brands subscribe to our platform. Okay. And so they they basically look at that and they tap into being able to understand how am I priced relative to the market? How are my competitors priced relative to the market? 
Um, what, how are per customers perceiving my prices? Um, and then they, they can input what their objectives are and we can help them understand how they should price based off of those objectives. Right. So as an example, a retailer or a brand logs in and they say, hey, my goal is to actually build more loyalty with my customers. I want to be perceived to be priced lower than the competition by this much, but I still need to make this much in terms of my profits. And so we go and we re-optimize that across all of their portfolio to help them understand how they can achieve those objectives based on all the data, analytics, and insights that we have. So they pay like a client versus uh, by each individual sale. That's oh, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a subscription. And then we also will manage revenue under management. So as they do well, right. Uh, we have many customers where as they do well and they grow and in terms of revenue on their side, uh, their, then our, our fees go up as well. Okay. That's great. Um, curious on a scale of one to 10, what's the difficulty in scaling a model like that? I don't mean a business like that, but a model like that. On a scale of one to ten, relative to other models that I've been involved, yeah, with. like because you could say, well, let's just do let's do uh, a product that has a history of scaling like crazy, because we got a better shot at at having a hockey stick result. Is is yours relatively? Is it in the middle? Is it easier? Is it harder? It's it's an unusual model. It's a clever model, but I'm I'm curious. Is it? Not is it scalable because probably any business is scalable. But I, I'm I'm curious by your own because you're in it. Mm -hmm. how, um, how difficult of an assignment did you sign up for? <laughs> uh, what's what's cool about it is that price pricing is the most powerful lever on a okay. PNL. So everyone needs to get pricing right, and that's the first place people go to. So there is huge demand for solutions that help them with that. So in terms of interest upstream, like you don't have to convince people that they need to get their pricing right. So, so it's easy to scale in that regard. Um, the reason that uh, you, know, you run into challenges in scaling a business like this is that there's a big difference between whether you charge 199 for a product and, and 209 for a product, right? Mm -hmm. And then you take that and you multiply that across all the different products that one carries and, and across all the markets they support. And all of a sudden you've got billions and billions of combinations of possibilities and and yet each one is important so there's such a rigorous focus on making sure that every pricing change is intentional and aligns to the strategy that you have to spend a lot of time uh, making sure you have tools in place analytics in place and and self-serve tools in place to help them make their decisions all, all the customers at it's, scale it's, without while minimizing mistakes because one bad price change can wipe out 10 good price changes it's interesting i was in a big box store literally this morning because our television universal remote one of the keypads the kind of a really important one just doesn't work anymore fine and i i went in i brought the remote with me and i said send me i sent they sent me to the row and there's there must have been 50 of them and i looked at them all and i want to make sure it worked for our tv and they seemed to all be about the same but the price difference was like 30 dollars. i'm thinking it's gonna be 20 bucks they started about 24 and they went up to like 75 bucks and so i finally asked the guy there and i said tell me the difference between the $75 one and the $24 one. He said, it's everyone is the same as the $24 remote, except the number of things you're going to connect to it. If you have less than eight, buy the $24 one. If you have like 15, get the bigger one. I said, thank you. And, but of course that's not obvious. And <laughs> my thinking was maybe I should go at least middle. Maybe I should pay 50 because there's probably more features. I wouldn't have any clue. And I couldn't tell by looking at the packaging. I'm going, 
Okay. And the guy who summed it up, I was like, thank you. That's it. I was like, by the cheapest one, because we have, I don't know, four, maybe five things to connect to it. Not, not above whatever their number was, but it's funny because that wasn't readily available and I, it's not my cup of tea. So it's like, uh, yeah. So you'd, you'd help with something like that. Exactly. I think, I think you hit on a use case that probably everyone can relate to. So that's a really good one. And what's funny is that you're going to have a difference between the people who create these products and the people who sell these products and then the consumers, right? Right. Someone who created the product might be like, no, this product is worth a lot more because I can have three HDMI, you know, uh, inputs versus right. two. Right. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that point of view, but that's that, that's the point of view. Then the retailer has a point of view about how they can maybe charge a relative to that, even though there's, you know, manufacturer suggested retail prices to, to reference too. Yep. Then you have the consumer and some of them value that greatly and other ones don't. And that's part of our whole business model is helping understand at a, at a market level, right? Within your store, what's the right price to settle on that, you know, aligns with your objectives um, based on, you know, who your consumers are in general. And our vision is that that's ultimately going to become personalized over time. So, yeah. hey, John, you know, we know that uh, John typically uh, looks for products that are, um, you know, that meet a, a general need, but he doesn't need any of the the, the fancy, you know, extra features. And the I, way to I get John a, to become... I had a sense that you get what you pay for. So I thought, don't buy the cheapest one because that's the one that probably it's less... <laughs> and the guy said it's yeah. literally the same infrared light and the same guts and the same battery. It just it just handles more. And I was like, oh, it just does more. Oh, okay, if it's the same it's like buying a car with the same engine and saying okay good it's got different wheels but the engine's the same yeah i'm just i'm just paying for crap i don't need so, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I would have and, had no idea because i don't know anything about that stuff and imagine imagine you bought the 75 dollar one right because you thought oh well i want to have good quality and value and you get home and then your friend comes over and says oh why'd you buy this one this uh this allows you to support 20 devices but you only have it. You only have connected to or two. It's harder to right? use because there were way more buttons. I thought I don't need more. He said it's a, yeah. the same ones that run your TV are all, and then they add six more extra buttons that you'll never use because that's when you have uh, twenty-two devices hooked up to it. I go, I don't have twenty-two devices. So, and and all of a sudden you start questioning, you know, the prices that you see at that retailer, right? And that impacts your trust and your loyalty, and you're going to start researching more. So that's exactly why you know what what's helped sell our products. We we help build loyalty by getting right. to prices that build, you know, loyalty essentially. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So is there, is there in that kind of a model, is there a, yeah. is there a critical episode or a critical point at which you say, now we're finally capable. We don't need into, we don't need more people. We don't need more infrastructure. We don't need a whole lot more marketing. We're at an inflection point and finally we can scale is there a is there a date or an event or an inflection point where you say at that point it should go here because our per unit or our cost per customer or our subscription doesn't rise with because we still have the number of how many employees do you have in your company? We're at two fifty right now. Oh, yeah, so we don't need another two fifty to to double. We could do it with another ten, and you go oh yeah. okay, now we're at scale. Is is there a is there an episode or a point that you look for or play for? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's the question becomes of the total addressable market that's out there. Okay. How much of that total addressable market could you support 
if they came if they came to you tomorrow and said we all want to sign up <laughs> and sure. the question is hey if i can back into a, a reasonable customer count based off of that um and know that we can you know meet their needs and help them actually solve those problems uh, uh efficiently then 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 we're happy right if there's a customer count that comes out that we can back into from there that that demonstrates that yep we've got the ability to support them at scale across quantities across you know geographies and markets across you know products and other use cases um then then we're there and and so for us that comes down to how many customers can we implement concurrently um at, at the same time okay. and so that's that's how we look at it and so as we continue improving our throughput there of how many customers we can implement and support you know in a hands-off low touch way uh then then we begin getting more aggressive about like you know putting pouring fuel on the fire and so um, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, we had a certain number and, and we've now, you know, 4X that um, that number. And so we're continuing to focus on that metric of what is the throughput we can clear. So does there come a point where um, the size or the amount of the subscription is 10X for some customers? And you say, you know what, we're going to we're going to scale by going only after the 10X customers, not the ones that are uh base baseline subscription or does it not does it is it the same amount of work and uploading and and whatnot where uh wouldn't make any difference i'm really glad you brought up that example i i should have mentioned that one that was a, that, that was a really good one so so in the past we really focused on large enterprises exclusively for yeah. that reason right it's hey it's a lot of effort to set anybody up because it's a complicated problem it's complicated to get, you know, a, a company's information and data loaded to a system because there's always issues with their data. And then we have to match up with ours. So the we, we reached an inflection point um, a couple of years ago, more like a year and a half ago, where we're now serving single store retailers or really small, you know, e-commerce retailers now as well. Okay. We never would have done that in the past, but we got to a point where we can, can stand a, them up. You can take a shoe store on Main Street now. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and we now do. <laughs> so and you, we, we, you just price we, it accordingly. Yeah. Well, we work with we work with six of the top ten retailers in the world right now. Um, yeah. And so we're supporting that level of scale. And we also support a you know John's shoe store. Exactly. Yeah. Like we have a, we have many of those examples now too. And so that's a badge of pride for us to be able to create value at that level um, on a repeatable basis. There's more that we always want to do to make that even more efficient. And so we do have initiatives around that, but. That was that was a proud milestone for us, where the unit economics worked for us to be able to support that's, groups like that. Yeah, that's interesting because I would I would think there's a there's a penalty for taking on the shoe shoe store or the bike shop, just because the the hassle factor isn't doesn't justify the revenue. But you've you've optimized that. A lot of our competitors started out working with the shoe stores because they were easier to close, right? Sure. Uh, short sales cycles, and after a while, they're realizing, hey, like I'm not I'm having a hard time making money on this. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and so they ended up counting then, up my losses working on this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then they walk away from those models, and so um, I'm I'm glad that we operated the way that we did. Some of it might have been intentional, some of it might have been luck, <laughs> but we really figured it out at the scale, uh, you know, the scaled level, so that we can then support the smaller guys more efficiently. So that worked out really nicely for us, um, and we got the to get the unit economics right, to get the delivery right, to get the um, infrastructure in place so that you can support. Um, you know, uh, someone who doesn't have a lot of IT skills, for example, right, and and can come in and just load something up and begin working with us on that right. basis. Um, that that was a moment of pride for us, and so 
I never answered your question. So coming back to your question in terms of- I don't of even remember what it was. Yeah. <laughs> you said on a scale of one to 10 compared to maybe other models yeah, that have yeah. been involved with how much trouble that I you know signed up for basically. Um, I would say that uh, in the early days, I would have probably given it a, a score of eight or nine relative to others okay. for the reasons we talked about earlier. And the reason for that is there are billions of pricing combinations. There are tens of thousands of products that are being carried yet almost every single price point matters. Um, if you think about the airlines, for example, right, they got a massive black eye because they priced so dynamically and so aggressively that consumers lost trusting, they lost their trust in those, right. those kinds of pricing models. Um, and although it's a different level of frequency and cadence and the price purchase prices are lower and a gross, you know, kind of fast moving consumer goods context, you still really run that risk of insulting your customers with your prices. So you got to be very careful about managing the scale and the precision balance, right? And no one has it perfect, but uh, we're very proud of where we've gotten to. We've been able to get to 99% plus SLAs around those types of measures that our customers use. And so, you know, as we've gotten to build the tools, mechanisms, processes, and and hire the people that got us to where we are now, I'd take that number down from a nine or an eight to a, let's call it a five. Okay. Um, I'd still put it a five because... Um, again, just the importance of it, right? If you get one price wrong, uh, it, it wipes out the goodwill of ten bad or of ten good prices, um, and and that's stressful for everybody involved. Um, but uh, and that'll never go away. So I think five is probably close to about the best you can do in that regard. But at one point, it was like an eight or nine or almost yeah, a 10. yeah, yeah. Which, is, yeah, which is interesting because uh, I so I'm curious. Um, I interviewed 250 CEOs and I asked a lot about risk profile of CEOs. And counterintuitively, a lot of them said, my real job is to de-risk the business. It's not to be risk. Uh, it's not to have a risk appetite or risk tolerance. It's to take any situation and say, how do we take out as much risk as we can before we put resources towards it? And I, I hadn't thought of that as a, as a methodology. And of course, it makes perfect sense. But for you to lower from a nine or a 9.5 to a five, you've effectively doubled your chances at scaling. Yeah, I, I love that. I, you're right. I didn't think about it that way either, but what you said just clicked for me. And I think part of it becomes, hey, as you mature, right, you end up having less customer concentration, for example, right? Um, you have more customers or composing yeah. your, your revenue. Um, and then you have more you know, people on, on, on the team. You've got more processes around what you're doing. And so as you think about what your next big move is, uh, you end up thinking about, well, how do I make that move without creating risk on what's working for me now? And how do I take the lessons and learnings so that I can reduce my likelihood of failure from X percent to Y percent? What you said makes total sense to me. Oh, I, I actually like that a lot. It's funny. You you talk to CEOs and entrepreneurs every day. So do I. I, I the sense I get is that if you don't um, if you don't slay a dragon or take gigantic risk, it's almost like you're not an entrepreneur. Like you don't get the you don't get the badge of honor for saying, yep, we took on Goliath and we beat him. And you think, what if you could just walk a half mile out of the way and a half mile back and avoid <laughs> Goliath and scale a lot faster? And they go, oh, yeah, you can't. No, that's not fair. You can't do that. And you go, why? <laughs> You're just taking all the risk out of it. <laughs> so. You must have a ton of interesting, fascinating data, actually, I'd say, because the market has evolved so much from when you first started your research to, to probably when you wrapped it up, right? There is the market was rewarding specifically companies that went after huge risk for massive ARR gains and growth. Absolutely. And now, 
Yep. 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 And and now it's it's exactly more of the COO, CFO led kind of mindset that's now being rewarded by the market, right? It's incrementality, right. predictability, unit economics, breaking path to profitability. That flip happened over like a three month period. Yeah. <laughs> like there's literally a three month gap where valuations just took a massive hit and they shifted what they were basing the valuations off of. Sorry, I might have cut you off. No, it's, 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 uh, I'm, I've been curious about the impetus. And the, the problem is the people we uphold as uh, the best CEOs in the world, Elon Musk. Total. I mean, he's not only a gunslinger. He's a, you know, he 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 leverages one company to borrow to buy another one, and you risk you put both of them at risk, and you think, man, it's if you get away with it, you go, that's amazing. But eventually, you think a gunslinger. If I mean, if it's you and me in a gunfight, only one of us ever wins. If you're in that game for a living, sooner or later, somebody's going to beat you, and you're dead. It's great if you win ten in a row, but eventually you're yeah. dead. It's a zero. It's Hunger Games, is what it is. It's yeah. you go. That's kind of scary. And I've got a super high risk tolerance, but some of it just seems like bravado, or mm-hmm. like it's if you, like your story when you get interviewed by CNBC isn't viable if you didn't take absurd risks and lose your house and sleep in your car and all that because you need all that drumming to think could is there a way to as as a lot of people said de-risk it not it doesn't mean there isn't risk every i mean every time you hire somebody at 250 you could hire the wrong person and it wrecks an entire team for six months you go man that set that team back six months for one hire it's crazy yeah. um i mean anything you can do is get risk to it but uh yeah i'm just, I'm just curious about that so yeah and yeah go ahead i was going to mention you know to to your point we many years ago now at this stage but many years ago we had a completely different business model um we were we had a b2c model where we were going after the consumers directly and we were you know taking we were going after the moonshot (laughs) um and in going after the moonshot we actually had our financing breakdown at the very last minute and so that led to us you know, again, with no notice, almost finding ourselves in a position where even though we had traction in the market, uh, it wasn't enough traction for us to sustain it organically on our own. Right. And all of our, our financing options just just left again many years ago. So we had to do a, a very drastic, crazy pivot. And that pivot took us, unfortunately, from 65 people down to less than seven people initially. And right. so um, we had to be in that pivot. I imagine a morale had to go in the toilet. Oh yeah. 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 Right. Like everyone would put their heart and soul into this, this, this vision. We were all behind and, you know, we built it together. And again, we had traction. (laughs) Uh, We had some traction. Um, And so when we pivoted to, to, you know, seven people or less, we had to redefine everything. But what's interesting is that we actually um, shifted from the moonshot to, to incrementality and, and the incrementality actually ended up, you know, paving the way to where we are today. It's just focusing on, Let's solve a problem. Let's figure out how to solve that problem well. Then let's go look for more problems to solve. Right. And so that led us to where we are now, right? We went from the five to seven people to the 250. And, and, and we're, you know, we're now, we went from one country to supporting over 180 countries now. And that's wow. a function of just that methodical, you know, uh, risk management, uh, you know, mindset that I guess I didn't really think about until this moment that we, we, we had to execute. I, I love the fact that uh, rather than do what, again, it's, a lot of this stuff's cliched. People, oh, we're looking for product market. We're still in the product market fit phase. And you go, ah. it's, to me, it's, again, maybe it's just the wrong language. But if you just solve big problems, 
you'll find people that'll pay you. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. If we solve that problem, we go from one country to 180. You go, yeah, we solved a big problem. Okay. Is that a product market fit? Who cares? I solved a problem in 180 countries. <laughs> paying me money. Yeah. I would. Yeah. It's, it's funny. We have language for this stuff that I think um, hides the real process. Uh, but yeah. All right. Um, curious. So you, you've gone from, you build at 65, back down to seven, and then up to 250. What, when you got down to seven, did you shift the archetype or the prototype of the person you hired when you said, now, number eight, better darn well look like this, because we, we got to 65, and either they weren't the right 65 or some, how would that work? But my, my guess is you're more prudent and maybe more thoughtful about uh, hiring at that point. Are there um, bullet points or, or uh, values or is there a, if we drew it on a whiteboard, would we have a, a schematic and say they should look like this and they better damn well not look like this one thing? Is, yeah. Did you develop that? Yeah. Yeah. We um, it's really funny because when we were built, you know, growing the team on the B2C side for the consumer end, we were looking for people who were just purely on a mission to change the world <laughs> in some way, right? Like we yep. just wanted to rally people say, hey, if you want to change the world and you want to put in the time and the work, come aboard, we'll figure it out. <laughs> right. um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That was great. But when we pivoted, it became all about focus and intentionality, right? And, and very specific things and goals that we needed to accomplish. And so to your point, the archetype evolved. And the way we got to the archetype was we actually created and crowdsourced a bunch of our values. So we, we brought in a culture consultant who we, we had known from before, did a great job. His name's uh, Mark. And what, what, what he did was he worked at a workshop with us and we defined what our core values were. Um, and that small group defined core values, what it meant, what it didn't mean in those core values. And we, we continued like making sure that we were filtering back to things that we wouldn't just put on a website, but that we actually would live by. And yep. we used that to inform our hiring. And so that was in 2015. Um, that we did that, or 2015, early 2016, when we did that. Uh, fast forward to this year, um, when we just acquired another company. And so we're bringing two cultures together. And we did a survey to understand, hey, do you like the core values still? Like, as a company, do we still align with them? Do we Would we throw them out? Would we add new ones? And it was actually really cool to see that we uh, realigned around the same three core values that we always had, but we added a fourth one. And the fourth one wasn't a predetermined one that we put in there. It was actually one that people wrote in because it was just naturally coming up in conversation. Organic. Strong, yeah. Yeah. It, it organic came strong together. So we crowdsourced our values from 2015 through now, and that has informed our hiring um, and influenced it a lot. Um, it doesn't set strict guardrails, but it's, you know, more of like a North star of what do we look for and how do we communicate why this is important to us, to people who are, are interviewing with us so that they can know what they're getting themselves into. Um, because yeah. you hear SaaS, SaaS companies, especially having technical debt, um, in the merger or in the rebuild from seven back back up to 250, did you have cultural debt? Like when I, when I say that, we've seen a lot of companies grow and they say, oh, that, that culture worked when we were garage band, but it doesn't work anymore at a hundred because we, yep. we can't have craft beer Fridays because what about people that are either in recovery or don't drink beer or, you go, that's culture. It's and it's a simple thing, but you go, that's cultural debt just because you can't run like a frat house anymore. At seven, you can mm -hmm. kind of do what you want, or uh, as garage band status. But did you have any cultural debt? 
I love the way you're framing these questions because you're making me realize things that happened without me realizing that they, my they, job. they were. Yeah, it's my yeah. job. It's my job. It's in the hot seat, but not in an embarrassing way. Yeah. No, this is awesome. So so we wanted, I get, I'm saying we wanted, this is what happened. I won't say yeah. what, what we wanted didn't want. What happened was um, organically was we, we took the parts of the culture. I mean, because we had a fantastic culture for what we were building, right? But okay. to your point, as you change and pivot, you need a different culture or an evolution of it. So we, we took the parts that actually worked really well. We, one of our core values is a growth-focused mindset. We all still have the same vision. We still want to change the world, right? And we want to constantly improve. So we want to maintain that part. But then we added in other layers that were you know, very different from what we were looking at before. So one of them was um, ownership. <laughs> so so you know, what does it mean to actually own and deliver something and meet a right. spec, right? So that's a shift, right? Because that goes from let's go change the world and, and innovate. Um, and and, so and it's all R&D all the time. To, ownership to, to, to delivering ownership took that place. Was, let's change the world uh so it went from uh we wanted to maintain the growth focused mindset and that's where we we stayed in with the change the world but yeah we, we pivoted away from some of the like you know language and objectives of let's go disrupt all of this stuff and make everyone's lives better tomorrow because we just didn't have the funding to go do that to let's go deliver and, and solve problems methodically and that's where ownership came in and another thing that came in was rigorous honesty. And at first I pushed back against rigorous honesty because I thought, uh, like, are people going to be rude with each other? Is that what it means? But, but as we talked more about it, the idea was, no, let's be honest about what we can accomplish. How let's not define, just see what... I'm just curious how you define rigorous honesty. Yeah, well, in this context, it was everyone should be able to speak their truth and what they're seeing without everyone getting offended, as so long as you do it respectfully. So as an example, when you're in a, I'm going to go change the world tomorrow kind of mindset as a startup, you, you, you go after, well, what are all the possibilities? And you chase the possibilities and you chase the shiny objects, right? When you go build a B2B SaaS company, right? Uh, which again, might have the same end goal, but you have to get there a different way. You're not raising a billion dollars to go change the world tomorrow. It, it becomes about, hey, I really like those ideas those don't actually solve the problem in a way that, you know, is going to create value and allow us to generate revenue tomorrow. <laughs> right. And as so opposed, it, it, as opposed to that's a shitty idea. So you yeah. wouldn't say that's a shitty idea because it's just disrespectful and shuts people down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And so, so those, that's kind of where we all landed and that was the evolution. Um, and it added more again of a focus on how do you operate a business versus how do you go just build something interesting? Right. right. Again, and, and that's not to be negative towards any B2C models or, or anything like that. It's just it's, it's just different. We can trash B2C models if we want to. <laughs> and we just have to do it respectfully. That's all. Yeah, there you go. Just be rigorously honest about it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm curious as, uh, in your scaling, uh, yeah. was there a point where you were scaling too quickly, like you couldn't control it, like you'd, you'd, you'd have a tiger by the tail? Or did it, did it feel more like, when are we ever going to get to scale or when are we ever going to get to rapid growth? I, I would say it actually took a while to get to the growth rate that we wanted. Mm -hmm. So at first it was like, Hey, we're spending time building these things. We're getting, we're being told they're the right things and they're solving problems, right. but like the growth isn't organically just chasing us. So like you start second guessing, like, are we going about this the wrong way? Should we step back? Can we back grow already? Back? Can somebody please grow yeah. around here? Yeah. 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 And so it, like that was kind of the mindset. We were growing, right? But it was like at a lower, slower rate. A yeah, we frustratingly expecting. slow pace. Yeah. 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 And then we hit an inflection point where we started 
uh, we made some enhancements both to what we did, but also how we talked about what we did. That's actually really important. <laughs> how you talked about what you did so that people understood it more clearly right. um, was a big, important different uh, change that we made. So you can get so excited about what you're doing that you describe the complexity of the problem versus yeah. describing what you're solving. And so yeah, that inflection your talk. Point, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were fascinated by what we, you know. We were impressed by the problems we were solving. We want everyone else to know how smart we were, right? And so, so we talk You're about that. shop talk, and they're going, "I just want to buy a remote control. That's <laughs> yeah, all exactly. I need. Do I buy the twenty-four dollar one or the fifty-nine dollar one or the seventy? <laughs> That's all I need. Yeah. yeah Sell my then, And you know, and we would say, "Wait, wait, but we will tell you that. But let me tell you about why. Right. How here's here's right here's how you know our our information's yeah. correct. You go. I don't give a crap. Just get me out yeah. of Best Buy as fast as you can." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what made what exactly and so that inflection point of making sure we're clear in what we were talking about how what we were doing and then also seeing customers who would move around jobs and bring us in with them to their new jobs those were the two points at which the growth really started nice. taking off because we're like okay cool now with the product is beginning to reference sell um i learned this from one of my mentors who previously said Early days, you're doing missionary selling, <laughs> and then you can reference sell, right? We evolved from the missionary selling to to the reference selling, and that helped a lot. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, in this journey, was there? A, uh, I won't say what 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 was there. Uh, one of the things I've learned is the keynote speakers that tell you about their you know their rise to the top. The ones that are interesting, I learned from, are the ones where they say, "Here's where I made a gigantic mistake, and I still overcome it." I'm much more interested because. I've certainly made gigantic mistakes and I didn't learn when I was, when, when, when everything was on autopilot and growing at 50% month after month, I didn't learn a thing other than how do I manage the cash flow and how many people do I hire? I'm curious, maybe biggest mistake, or I would call it biggest lesson. And then second to that is what's the tuition you had to pay for that? Um, I'm going to answer the question. Feel free to reorient me if I'm, if I get anyway, this dodging of questions is getting to be a trend here. <laughs> um so no, no, bring, bring me back in if i'm not answering your question okay I'll, I'll i'll reel you in when you ask a question like that it makes me think of like all the millions of of of, of learnings from bad decisions we made so then like if there are a lot of places to go down so i would say i'd answer in a couple ways one is there is a tendency to think in a startup context that anybody can do any role with the right support or mindset. Especially if they and, fit the cultural guidelines. If they fit the four well, core values, you go, yeah, we'll plug them in anywhere. They'll fit really well. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And and so like one of the hardest things is making tough decisions around who to put where and, and, and you know, like making sure you have the right people leading the different initiatives. Mm. Um, it's very tempting to... Then one, uh, a follow up to that, it's very tempting to then say, hey, here are some situations where people aren't performing or meeting the, the needs that we have of them. And it's tempting to then overinvest in those folks. Right. And so instead of investing in the people who are making massive progress and moving the business forward aggressively, you end up investing in making maybe people who are not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So how do I make this person go from 10% effectiveness to 15 or 20% instead of saying this person's at 120% effectiveness, right? How do I actually unblock them further? And right. so those are two lessons for me. And then they're, they're people lessons, right? I'm curious yeah. if there was a, if there's a kissing cousin of that one where you say, well, they're, they're not doing very well in marketing, but we love them. Let's put them in accounting. And then you get the same mm -hmm. result in accounting because you go, oh, they're 10% effective in accounting and they were 10% in marketing. 
yes, we love them and they fit our core values, but may, maybe they shouldn't work here. Maybe they just aren't yeah. commercially viable. Yeah. It's, yeah, that happens. That happens. And, and what's nice is that people actually self-select and I self-identify typically at that stage, right? Because you know, you know whether do. you feel good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been fortunate to have people self-identify and just like, you know, either call out that there needs to be another transition or just organically it kind of works itself out too. But like, the sooner you can identify that and do something about it, the better for everybody. Sorry, go ahead, John. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the, one of the again, it was one of the counterintuitive things that made perfect sense when several CEOs said it. They said, we have a rule. If we're going to take Edris and he's, he's struggling in marketing and then put him in accounting, the accounting manager gets a veto if they want it. Because yeah. they know who you are and they go, you know, I, he seems like a decent guy. I'll take him on because did we just change one problem to your team? And you go, I don't want that guy. If he sucked in marketing, I don't want him on my team because I could have. So the, whoever the acquiring team is, if they say, let's try him in accounting, the accounting person can say, sorry, not here. And if, you know, if every team says not here, it doesn't mean it's a bad person. They just go, you know what? We're trying to rescue somebody. And they, they weren't, they realized they weren't in the rescuing business. And I thought, you know, that does make sense because chances are, if you're struggling part of that is here on yourself. It's not the team or the product yeah. or whatnot. You go, yeah, you're not going to walk into the new team with great confidence because you just got bounced from one team. It's not like you're going to ride in and say, I'm ready to go. You're going to say, yeah. I hope I don't screw up here too. And that's what yeah. they realized is the team leaders, they were, they were saddling the team leaders with maybe poor performers. So they give the team leader, you know, quietly a veto. And I thought, that makes such good sense because otherwise you just penalize the team leader. And that's, yeah. and that's not fair to the team leader to say, we need your team to do this much accounting work. You go, then why the hell did you give me this guy? <laughs> I, I didn't yeah. get a choice. Yeah. You placed him on my team. I didn't get a choice. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think the, the pe reason we all do it, even though we know that's that lesson and we relearn it again and again is because then you see the success stories where it does work out really well. It does right? every once in a while, but the odds are against it. That's, that's, that's the message I got. I I've never kept track, but it intuitively makes sense that the odds would be against it. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. So what's the tuition you paid? You, you gave us the, your lesson. What's the tuition you paid for that? Yeah. I mean, there were, there were some customers that we worked really hard to win. Um, and then when you have the mindset of, uh, Hey, <laughs> you know, anyone can do any job. Right. Um, and, and with the right attitude, making, yeah, anybody can do any job. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and when you don't make, you know, uh, change course or, or, or adjust fast enough, then you can go and you can look and say, Hey, like this situation didn't work out. It could have worked out very well if we just made some of these decisions that we probably knew we should have made earlier but didn't because we want to believe that, you know, again, anyone can do anything with the right support. Um, the tuition ends up being, you know, in our case was we, we lost some customers, right? Uh, our, our retention rate, which is really tough for us because our customer retention rate is north of 95% over like a three to five plus year period. So it's a big deal for us to lose a customer, a really right. big deal. So it was that's incredibly a big, painful. That's a big penalty to pay. Yeah, it is. It is. And so, but we learned those lessons, <laughs> yeah. right? And then we keep, and, and you relearn those lessons too. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Oh, that's great. Um, it's my favorite question at the end. Um, if, if we go back to seventh and eighth grade, your junior high, what was there? Would we have guessed, like we look back and say, yeah, same guy. Was Edris the same guy, just a junior high version? Like who were you in seventh and eighth grade where you go, 
Yeah, he'd be a guy running a SaaS based or a tech based or a, a venture funded uh, startup. Yeah, that. Yeah, I could see that. Or would they say, no way, no, no, that's a complete transformation. I was so shy back then and so quiet that I really don't think anyone would necessarily peg, you know, me to be uh, in the role I'm in. Okay. Um, so I so the thankfully role, maybe not. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm the same person, I guess, but, but, but in terms of uh, like, you know, just where you might peg me, uh, definitely not. I think what helped me a lot was I, I did, I ended up doing karate and kickboxing for like 12, 12 years. And, and that actually brought that out of me. Um, and, and made me a lot more comfortable uh, when you do contact sports like that, right? Uh, interacting, engaging for yourself out there. So, so no, Perfect. I think I think uh, I think people would not have expected that. Maybe oh, this guy was uh, this guy would have been maybe a, a a journalist or something like that is probably or where people could, would have. Or you me. could have been the product guy, the tech nerd, and sit in the back by yourself, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I wasn't such a bad engineer myself, yeah. Except a bad tech. Yeah. <laughs> you been fired as the both, tech nerd. <laughs> both my both my parents were engineers, and and I learned coding early on, and I was absolutely terrible at it. Absolutely terrible. That's but funny. it gives me a bit go, of deep. What's the chances? We're both we're both engineers. What what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was clear I did not have genetic mystery. Yeah, that's funny. So you were so no one would have gone to Vegas in when you were in eighth grade and said let's bet let's bet the ranch on this guy uh starting a firm or raising money or doing all the crazy things that a ceo has to do to get a, a company going uh you know i think my parents would have believed in me maybe and maybe that would be it no, that's crazy. <laughs> your, your parents and your dog don't get a vote yeah, they, yeah, they yeah exactly yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, they always they'll always buy your product too, even if they don't know how to use it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and to be honest, a lot of this stuff ends up being luck too, right? Like just what situations you find yourself, who did you meet, what influences did you have early on? So um, anyone could end up on any path, but uh, no, this is not a path that someone who went to Vegas would would bet on for me. I'm sure. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's funny. Yeah, that's my favorite. The stories about this have been amazing. The, the, who people were in seventh grade, and uh, one of the guys was one of the early podcast I did he said oh my god I was painfully shy and I said so like at the seventh grade dance you would have been off in the corner by yourself and he said are you kidding me I would have been off in the corner in my bedroom I wouldn't have gone to the seventh grade dance <laughs> and I said, well, funny well I asked him why and he said well he's from uh, Taiwan and so they came to America and his, his mom said the way you're going to learn English because she didn't speak English natively either you're going to have to sit and watch TV. So she said, I want you watching TV 12 hours a day. So he said, I was raised by television. And so I had no friends, a super bright guy. And, and now he's just like, I mean, he's a fashionista and all that other stuff. And I said, now, if you went to this dance, what would happen? He said, oh, I'd have every chick's phone number in about 10 minutes. <laughs> just, <I> <laughs> Gotta love that confidence too. <laughs> yeah, well, because he said, I'm, oh yeah, I, I, I like when the client calls and says, we want you in our office tomorrow morning at nine o'clock because we're, we're, we've got to solve this problem and I'm going to be on the hot seat. He said, I love that. Just like parachute, parachute me in. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's, that's just funny. But uh, yeah, it is. The transformation ones are the, the most interesting stories. So. Using that exact example, uh, uh, not exaggerating in the sixth grade middle school dance uh, when everyone else was dancing I was running around playing tag with one of my friends at the dance which is like this nerdiest thing you could do and at one point he caught me and like pushed me and I tripped into someone and that ended up being my first dance so yeah. <laughs> so yeah so yes Un very, very unwilling accidental you go I guess I'm dancing now <laughs> 
Now what do I do? Yep. <laughs> yeah. You dance like a sixth grader. Yeah. That's what you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. great. That's great. Well, Edris, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I appreciate your wisdom, your candor, your insights. Uh, this can only come from people that are actually doing it on the front lines. You, you don't talk to uh, university professors about their study about scaling. You talk to you talk to entrepreneurs that have to do it every day. So I really appreciate you uh, investing some time with us today. No, thank you, John. I, I had a lot of fun. Um, and, and you asked awesome questions. And like I said, I can't wait to read the book. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.